afternoon is Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. Mark 14, verses 1 to 11. As you might notice, if you looked ahead at the liturgy sheet, this includes, this reading includes our entire text for this afternoon as well. The text for this afternoon is Mark 14, verse 3 to 9. We'll read for our reading uh, verse 1 to 11. And since it includes our entire text, we'll just read it once. And then after singing in response, we'll proceed right into the sermon. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, that is Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came up with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, and what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Having just read about Judas's plan to betray Jesus, uh, let's sing a relevant psalm. Uh, psalm 55, stanzas 9 and 10.
So as I already mentioned, uh, Mark 14, verse 3 to 9 is our text for this afternoon. No need to read it again, but please uh, keep it open uh, while we go through this passage together. Brothers and sisters, what is something worth? Up until a few years ago, my parents owned a restaurant. They owned a, a little fish and chip shop. And my parents were often uh, messing around, fine-tuning the menu. And at one point, they came up with a really great meal, a really great special, a really great deal. Uh, it was very delicious. You can trust me on that. I was always their guinea pig. That was not a bad job to have. The, the, the portion was uh, really big, and honestly, it was just a really good price. And so they promoted it. Uh, they made uh, little signs for it, and uh, they would recommend it to their customers, and they sold some, uh, but they didn't sell a whole lot. One day, they got some advice. They, they were told that this meal they were selling, it was perfect. It was delicious. It was a generous portion size, and they were told just keep everything exactly the same, except raise the price a little bit. And so they tried it. They raised the price by a couple of dollars. Everything else stayed the exact same. And against all reason, it started selling better. Isn't that strange? When we go into a restaurant or a store, or when we're browsing on Amazon, we all like to think that we're reasonable and objective evaluators of what things are worth, right? But actually, we're not. We're actually pretty bad at it. We don't really know what's a good deal for every kind of food or every kind of item or every kind of experience. I could just ask you, what's an order of haddock and chips worth? You just have to guess, right? Or how about a barbecue or a stroller or a 10-minute gondola ride? When we evaluate things, we're, we're kind of just guessing. And the best we can do is look around and try and calibrate our own guess by seeing what people are charging and what other people are paying. And studies have been done about this. And some businesses use the information to their advantage from these studies. They try and get us all to up our guesses for what something is really worth, what we should be willing to pay for things. And so businesses, they'll tell us that things that seem pretty expensive to us, that actually they're 40% off. That's pretty good. Maybe we should get it. Or they'll tell us to compare to something similar at twice the price. Maybe it's actually a good deal. Likewise, the restaurant doesn't necessarily expect you to buy the really expensive appetizer, but maybe they want you to flip over the page and uh, see the 25 burger on the next page and think, that's a really good deal. Is it a good deal? Or is the appetizer just overpriced? We're not really sure. The truth is we go around all day, every day, making value judgments of what's worth our time, what's worth our energy, what's worth our money, and how much of our money. And today we ask a similar question, but a much more important question. What's Jesus worth? That's the most important question of all. That's the question that our passage is all about. What is Jesus Christ worth? And we'll explore that question in three parts. First, we'll see a beautiful gesture. Secondly, we'll see an ugly response. And then finally, we'll see a priceless Savior. And to start, our conversation about burgers and fish and chips is uh, really fitting because what we just read together in Mark chapter 14 is called, I'm being serious now, a Markian sandwich. 
That's the literary device that we read together. It's common in the book of Mark. Mark often likes to start by telling a story like what we just read together. Mark starts telling a very dark story in chapter 14, verse 1. He's telling a story about the envy and hatred of the chief priests and the scribes growing. Growing until we read in chapter 14, the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. This is a dark story Mark's about to tell. At this point in Mark, Jesus is a wanted man. Some of the most powerful people in Israel want him dead. This dark picture sets the scene. And things are about to get darker still. We read elsewhere that the religious leaders had ordered it that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they were supposed to let them know. They should come and tell them immediately. But little did they know when they made that announcement that one of Jesus' own disciples would soon answer their call. Judas Iscariot himself, we read, goes to the chief priests to agree to hand over Jesus to certain death. At this point in Mark, and this week leading up to Good Friday, we've entered into Passion Week. The most significant and the most somber and the darkest part of all of Scripture. And in that context, Mark sandwiches in our text for this morning. Like a light in the darkness, or like a diamond shining brilliantly against a black velvet cloth. As the story turns very, very dark, Mark tells us in verse 3 that a woman came. And this woman came to Jesus, not empty-handed, but she came to him with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly, Mark says. And very costly is an understatement. I don't know if you know what alabaster is. I I didn't really. It's a precious stone. It's sort of like marble. And so the jar itself that this woman brings would have been quite expensive. And the perfume inside of it It was imported from what's now known as the Himalaya mountain range between uh, India and China. It would have been extremely expensive. And this woman didn't bring just a little bit of it. John tells us that she had a pound of this perfume. 16 ounces. An ounce of Chanel perfume, I'm told, can break the bank. But imagine a pound of that same perfume. The disciples estimate the value of the perfume this woman is carrying up to Jesus at 300 denarii. You remember what a denarii is? You've heard about it before. A denarii is a one day's wage for an ordinary laborer. Uh, so factoring days off, of course, in a year, this is about a year's salary for a regular worker. A direct comparison today is really difficult to do, but start thinking maybe thirty or $40,000 This woman who walks onto the scene takes this jar, likely the most valuable possession she had, and she brings it with her to Jesus. Most uh, commentators agree that this was likely a family heirloom or an inheritance. They, They agree it likely would have been her security for the future. If someday this woman needed money, well then here she had all the money she needed. She could just sell it. More than that, if someday she needed a dowry to get married, well, here it was. Well, she takes this flask. It's not something you'd carry around after all. You'd keep it in a safe place at home. And she takes it with her because she's decided that she needs it. There's something she desperately wants to do with it. 
there's only one thing that she desperately wants to do with it. She wants to give it to Jesus. And so she takes it to him at a dinner party. And Mark says she doesn't just open it and spill a couple of drops. Mark says she breaks it. She breaks the jar and pours out all, every single drop of this perfume on Jesus. As we read in other Gospels, it covers not just his head, but even down to Jesus' feet. This woman has taken the most expensive thing she owned. She took her future and her security. And in a moment, she devoted it all to Jesus Christ. What an incredible act of love and sincerity for her Lord and for our Lord. This woman really loved Jesus, didn't she? More than that, she really wanted to show that she loved Jesus. And in John, we read that this lady was Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. So Mary, of course, she knew Jesus well. What's Mary famous for? She's famous for sitting and listening at Jesus' feet, especially while her other sister was busy serving, right? So Mary knew Jesus, and she listened to him and been taught by him. And so she came to love Jesus. She came to adore Jesus. And Jesus hadn't just taught Mary, but he'd done something else amazing for her too. I wonder if you remember what. Not long before this event that we just read of, Lazarus, Mary's brother, had gotten sick, and he passed away. And then Jesus came, and he met with Martha and called over Mary as well. And Mary came, and she fell at Jesus' feet. And then Jesus wept with them. And that's not all he did. Jesus raised her dead brother back up to life. And so this lady, Mary, in just thankfulness and in sheer awe at the person and work of Jesus Christ, not just the raising of her brother, but everything she had come to know about this Jesus, the Messiah, this Savior who is here, this man she confessed was the Christ, the man who taught her about God, the man who raised her brother from the dead, out of love for everything that Jesus is and was, everything he said, everything he had done. She comes to Jesus at this dinner in Bethany. In fact, she might have even helped arrange it, since John tells us Lazarus was there too, and Martha was serving. And Mary, in deep love and gratitude and thankfulness, and in deep praise for Jesus Christ, for who he was and what he came to do, she broke out this precious perfume and poured it as a gift on Jesus Christ. She had a great, great, deep, remarkable love for Jesus. And this was one way she could begin to express that. And what a time to do it. As we just heard, this is a dark part of the story. Jesus is on his way to suffer and die. And many suppose that maybe Mary understood Jesus' teaching about his death uh, better than others did. Maybe she was more in tune with his emotional turmoil and distress leading up to the days of his death. If so, it's even more clear why she loved Jesus so much and why right now Mary really wanted to show Jesus that. And as you may have noticed, Mark leaves out an important piece of information for understanding this. Mark doesn't say it was Mary. Mark doesn't give the woman's name at all. The reason that Mark does this is probably because it doesn't really matter exactly who responded to Jesus in this way. It doesn't matter exactly why 
uh, this woman responded to Jesus in this way. What Mark wants to emphasize instead is simply that of all the responses to Jesus that you read throughout this whole gospel, this is the right one. This is how we should respond to Jesus. This is how we should respond to his teaching. To getting a glimpse of him, to, to getting to know him, to having him work in our lives and the work, of other, the work in the lives of others that we know as well. This is the right response. Not just for Mary, but for all of us. This is by far the best response to Jesus in the whole gospel so far. She responds with pure, wholehearted, radical love and devotion and worship to Jesus. And Mark's point is, this is what the gospel should do in people's lives, in our lives. This is what the person and work of Jesus should do. Learning from Jesus and getting to know him and getting a sense of his person and work should lead us to costly, wholehearted acts of devotion, pouring out our love, first of all, on Jesus Christ himself, and then pouring out our love on others as well. If the gospel doesn't do this, well then, what has the gospel done? The gospel's touched our minds, maybe. We know it intellectually, but it's left our hearts untouched. But this was Mary's radical response to the gospel, and it should be ours too. Coming to know and trust and love Jesus, we should want to show that love. We should want to do something beautiful for Jesus. And yet after Mary does this beautiful thing, showcasing Jesus' great value to her, next we see an ugly response. This lady just came and she greatly honored Jesus Christ by anointing him. This was a more common action uh, back then. But she'd done it out of a great love and devotion and at great personal expense. And this was an amazing thing. What kind of a response would you expect? Especially at this party, this party for Jesus. Uh, this group of Jesus' friends and especially the disciples. But we read in verse 4, that the bystanders were, and Matthew especially mentions that the disciples in particular, in particular, they saw this, and they were furious. Mark says that they were indignant. And then he says in verse 5 that they scolded the woman. They rebuked her very harshly for what she had done. As much as we would like to think that this is a really surprising response. The more that we think about it, the more we imagine the situation, the more we really picture it, the more we imagine ourselves being there, the more I think I have to admit, maybe you have to admit too, the more I think I have to admit, I would have been right there with them. I think I would have been looking down on Mary. Uh, $40,000 poured out in an instant. $40,000. Can you imagine that? And for what? For what? That's a life-changing amount of money. And like I said, this was a pro-Jesus crowd. The people like the disciples, people like us. Yet when they see this, they're offended. What's Mary thinking? More than that, they're uncomfortable. They're probably embarrassed. Wouldn't this make you uncomfortable too? Though the disciples had confessed that Jesus was the Messiah with their mouths, they knew it intellectually. What we see here is that they had never experienced anything like this before. And it annoyed them. 
Their hearts had never burned with this kind of love and devotion for Jesus, even though they had spent years with him at this point. When they saw it, it bothered them. It angered them. They had never experienced a heart bursting with love for Jesus and longed to show it any way they could. They had never longed to pour out everything for Jesus. And so often we too have a half-hearted devotion to Jesus. And when we do, nothing disrupts and rattles our half-hearted devotion to Jesus more than being confronted with a deep, wholehearted devotion to Jesus. A wholehearted love for Jesus. And in their discomfort and defensiveness, look at what the disciples say. First of all, they say, what a waste. They say it's a waste using this perfume on Jesus in this way, this costly perfume. And then to justify what they're saying, they say this ointment could have been sold and given to the poor. Could have been sold and given to the poor. And what's really scary here, you have to admit, they're not really wrong, are they? It could have been sold and given to the poor. Uh, a year's salary was spent in a moment here. It could have done a lot for the poor. And of course, God does call us to care for the poor constantly, doesn't he? And that's what Jesus references here. In response to this uh, statement that they could have given it to the poor, Jesus references Deuteronomy 15, uh, a text where God tells the Israelites that they will always have the poor with them. And now people get that twisted. Have you ever heard that text used wrong? Sometimes people say, oh, the poor will always be with us, as though that means we shouldn't really give to the poor. That's the exact opposite of how God uses it, and Jesus uses it here as well. God tells the Israelites there will always be poor people with them. And that means always be radically giving to the poor. They always need your help. Never forget them. That's what Jesus is referencing here. He is saying, yes, you'll always have the poor. Do give to the poor. Keep on giving generously to them. He says that there's something else different. There's a higher priority for them right now uh, in this passage. But the disciples here aren't totally wrong. But their priorities are completely wrong. Bringing in the poor as an excuse to justify what they think is a waste, uh, when in reality, this is a thin disguise for the fact that the real problem is their their evaluation of Jesus' worth is wrong. The disciples, and so often we, we value Jesus far, far too little. You see, the disciples don't know what Jesus is worth to them yet. But one look at this, this radical act of devotion, they see the price and they say that is way too much. Way too much. And again, this is a scary thing because it comes from the followers of Jesus. It comes from the disciples, as Matthew emphasizes. But John, in his gospel, he tells us who the ringleader of this outcry was, who was the loudest, most outspoken opponent of this lady. It was none other than Judas Iscariot himself. Did the other disciples care for the poor? Uh, I'm sure they did. Uh, In fact, when they're sent out as apostles, they make sure that the churches take good care of the poor. But did Judas care for the poor? The one who riled up the others to join with him in scolding this lady? The one leading the outcry? Did Judas care? Not one bit for the poor. He didn't care. 
John tells us that specifically. He tells us that Judas Iscariot was greedy. He tells us that he was skimming off the top from the collection. What Judas wanted was more financial, more money donations to Jesus so he could help himself, so he could benefit himself. So the disciples, people a lot like us, they end up on Judas Iscariot's side. They end up on his side against Jesus and against the most loyal and beautiful disciple of Jesus so far in Mark. They're scolding her, rebuking her. Isn't that a shocking truth? Isn't that a humbling truth? As one commentary notes, the world never had a problem with religion in moderation. It doesn't have any notion of too much wealth or too much power or too much sex or influence, but it does have a problem with too much religion. It's okay to say that Jesus is your Lord, that you belong to him body and soul, but don't live like it. It's fine to trust the Bible and listen to it, but not all of it, not all the time, not in every situation. It's okay to say Jesus is your king, fine, but don't you dare say that Jesus is my king. And as we see here, this kind of thinking can and does sneak into the church as well, even the very early church. We can so easily fall for the same lie, and we too can want to avoid extremes. We too can call for moderation, even in our worship of Jesus Christ. If you invest your money or your time or your passion in pursuit of worldly things, is anyone going to speak up? No problem. If you want a big house or a uh, good vacation or a long retirement, you just want to enjoy your life, and you've got your hobbies and you're willing to make great sacrifices and investments to enjoy these things, No one will say a word. But suddenly, if you see that kind of wholehearted, self-sacrificial love for Christ, suddenly Jesus Christ is all that you care to live for. He is all you want to talk about. You want to sacrifice time and money and countless other things for Jesus. Then suddenly we all get a little uneasy. We get a little bit uncomfortable. Suddenly we start to poke holes and try and find fault. Maybe you've heard of this happening with some churches. There are churches trying to be faithful, trying to serve the Lord with everything they got, whatever uh, ideas that they have. And then people on the sidelines, maybe people in other churches, they start grumbling. They start saying it would be so much better if they did this. Why are they bothering doing that? What a waste of time. What a waste of money. I have to admit, I've done this before. Uh, I've heard about a church event or a church program, and I'm like, they don't know what they're doing. Why would they bother wasting their time doing that? What a silly way to worship God is essentially what we're saying when we do that. Or maybe you've had this with church members. There have been people whose priorities seem all backwards, so different than ours. Maybe they don't seem to care too much about education or about their career. Maybe they're not saving up for a nice house. Maybe they're living in a, a renting a, a, a small Uh, undesirable house somewhere. Maybe they're not trying to get married and have a family. Instead, they're focused on youth programs or mission trips or something like that. Sometimes this happens and people wonder, when are they going to grow up? A famous example of this type of thinking in the church is William Carey. I wonder if you've ever heard of William Carey. A hint of where this story is going to go. He's now known as the father of modern missions. 
William Carley strongly believed that the church was falling, failing in its God-given task. He believed that the church needed to spread the gospel far more than it was. And he argued that men needed to go. This had to be a priority. Money needed to be given generously for this work, and gifted preachers needed uh, to be commissioned and sent overseas. By the churches and by many church leaders, William Carey was very quickly labeled as a fanatic. He was called a most miserable enthusiast. When he was arguing passionately one time that people needed to go preach the gospel far and wide to the nations to, to change their lives, to give up and make all kinds of sacrifices for the glory of God in this way, then one experienced church leader famously stood up and said to him, Young man, sit down. When God desires to convert the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. What an attitude, even in the church. Brothers and sisters, we need to test the spirits. It's good to be stewardly and prudent and to carefully plan out and try and discern what God would have us do, how he would use us, have us use our talents and our, our gifts, have us use our lives for his glory. Of course we should steward our money, we should value education and families. Of course we should, of course, we know this. Of course, as well, like the disciples said, of course, they're right, they're right. We should be generously giving to the poor, always. That's what Jesus tells them. But we need to be careful so that we don't, like the disciples in this instance, find themselves on the side of the hypocrite rather than on the side of the devoted follower of Jesus nitpicking and criticizing the one who's trying to worship our God. Often it's us who need more devotion to Jesus, not fanatics who need less. When looking at Christ and learning from him and being amazed by him, loving him, as J.C. Ryle says on this passage, when we look to Jesus Christ, we will start to fear wasting time. We'll start to fear wasting talents and money and affections. We'll fear wasting them on the things of this world. We will not be afraid of wasting our money, wasting our talents and gifts and affections on our Savior. We will fear going to extremes, extremes about business, about money, about politics or pleasure, but we will not be afraid of going to the extreme for Jesus Christ. That's where William Carey was at as well. When William Carey couldn't really persuade others to send missionaries to India, William Carey decided he would just go himself. He couldn't get permission from the local uh, authorities to go, but he went anyway, trusting God to open a door. And God did open a door. In total, Dr. Carey gave 41 years of service to India. Many people came to faith while he was there, hundreds of them. And he helped lay the foundation for mission work for generations to come. He translated the Bible into Bengali by himself. And he paved the way for portions of scripture to be printed in 40 other languages and dialects that had never been translated into before. They established a college to train native ministers. They opened a hospital for lepers. And they found at least 30 large mission stations. And later on, the professor who had opposed William Carey uh, as a fanatic and as a, an enthusiast, he later came around to he humbly admitted that God had used William Carey to call them out of their apathy. And that's what we see here in this passage as well. 
God uses this event to call out his disciples, to teach him that there's no such thing, to teach them rather, that there's no such thing as half-hearted devotion to Jesus. And there's, he's teaching us the same message here as well. There's no room for worshiping uh, Jesus and loving Jesus and submitting to Jesus in moderation. Just on Sundays. Just in the morning. Just at certain times in our week. And that's how it should be. Because that's what Jesus is worthy of. And we'll see why, considering our third point, our priceless Savior. But now think about this for a moment. The disciples mentioned that the $40,000 could have been given to the poor, and in a way, they're right. And yet, Jesus defends the woman. Jesus says, leave her alone. He asks, why do you trouble her? And he says, she has done a beautiful thing for me. From there, Jesus goes on to explain that Mary, in her love, seems to have done far more than she could possibly know. Jesus says in verse 8, She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. As many of you know, there were many people who were anointed in the Old Testament. There were prophets and priests and kings. They were all anointed. And this signified they were set apart by God. They were set apart for God. It was their job to stand between God and his people. God was choosing them for a task, and he had equipped them for that task also. And Jesus, of course, he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. That means he's the anointed one. The one that all of Israel had been waiting for. Because the prophets and priests and kings of the Old Testament, they couldn't truly save anybody. They needed to be saved themselves. They couldn't truly bring people like us back to God. They couldn't truly wash away our sins. But Jesus Christ, finally, he could. He was set apart by God. He was equipped by the Holy Spirit. But here we're told he receives another anointing. Jesus tells us that Mary was, uh, has now anointed him for burial. Also a familiar, a regular kind of anointing back then. But never for someone who's still alive. And here we see the Messiah has been set apart to die. And here in her wonderful selfless act of love and devotion, Mary anoints him beforehand for his burial. And just think about the result, the consequences this has, which Mary must not have fully realized. Mary pours out 16 ounces of costly, beautiful spelling ointment, running down Jesus' hair and his beard, into his garments, and even down to his feet. And the scent, we're told, it filled the whole house. And so, of course, it, it must have lingered on Jesus as well. So think about the next few days, the dark, dark story we were talking about earlier. As Jesus went on to celebrate Passover with his disciples and give them their final lessons, as Judas left from their midst, as Jesus went out to Gethsemane to pray, as angels came and ministered to Jesus in his distress, as Jesus sweated drops of blood, saying, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. As Jesus was arrested, as he was stripped and beaten, mocked and spit at, as his garments were divided up, as he was nailed onto a piece of wood, we need to imagine his hair, his beard, his garments were left smelling a little bit like this perfume. 
A smell reminding Jesus of Mary's love, of her faith, of her devotion to Jesus Christ. Here in the midst of the darkness to come, we get a beautiful picture of Mary's love poured out for Jesus. As Jesus goes on and pours out his blood, his life for Mary and for you and for me. One commentator mentions that when we study the Bible, we can come and study it like scientists, using diagnostic equipment in a lab. We can come and dissect all the words and the phrases. And then when we do that, we can lose all sense of the humanity involved. But he warns us that we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that in any part of the scripture, but maybe especially not here. This dark part of the story leading up to Good Friday, to Easter Sunday, this coming week. This commentator warns, when we get to this part of Scripture, let's tread very carefully as we reflect on this passage and the coming passages. Because they're not just words on a page. These are a detailed description of the days and events leading up to the brutal death of an innocent man. More than that, they're leading up to the terrible death of our magnificent Lord, our wonderful King, our dear Savior, and your brother, and your friend. Leading up to his horrible death for our sake. Keeping that in mind, $40,000, gone in an instant. How isn't that a waste? Because it's for Jesus. It's for Jesus. Of course it's not a waste. Devoted service, devoted love, devoted worship done for Jesus Christ is never a waste. Never. Costly perfume for Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, that is a good investment. That's the best investment. Pouring out your future and security for Jesus, that's a good call. And it doesn't need to be $40,000. Jesus isn't concerned with the price. Our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, doesn't he? Two chapters before this, Jesus is at the temple and there he's watching. And he sees a widow give her last two coins to God. Not 300 days worth of wages. Actually, if you look at the footnote, you'll see it's one sixty-fourth of one day's wage. You know what Jesus says when he sees that woman put those coins in the pot? He says she's given the most of anyone here. He says that she, like Mary, gave what she could. And Jesus is pleased with even that little offering. Brothers and sisters, no amount of worship, no amount of love or devotion to Jesus is wasted. Our church attendance, even when the sermon isn't very great, it's not a waste. It's not a waste. Our personal devotions, our prayer groups, our care groups, they're never wasted. They're not just for us. They're not just for our edification. They're for God's glory. They're a time to worship. Our time at work, our time working at home, our time caring for the kids all day long again, our time doing chores again, doing laundry again. When we're working for the Lord, it's not a waste. Our labor is not in vain as long as we dedicate it to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You know what does seem like a waste? It does seem like a waste that Jesus Christ, this innocent man, the best of us all, God in the flesh, that he gave up his perfect life, that he poured out his blood so that you and I might live. To us, that seems like a waste. Thankfully, praise God, to Jesus it didn't. For Jesus, it was absolutely worth it to bring us back to God and to bring glory to his great name. So brothers and sisters, this Passion Week, let's remember, that is what you are worth to Jesus. Let's reflect on the question, what's Jesus worth to us? This woman, Mary, she was the first to get it right. Jesus is worth absolutely everything. Amen. Let's sing together in response. When I survey.